When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody comes back. Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked drawer today, didn't you? Three Miles Up by Elizabeth Jane Howard There was absolutely nothing like it, an unoriginal conclusion, and one that he had drawn a hundred times during the last fortnight. Clifford would make some subtle and intelligent comparison, but he, John, could only continue to repeat that it was quite unlike anything else. It had been Clifford's idea, which, considering Clifford, was surprising. When you looked at him, you wouldn't suppose him capable of it. However, John reflected, he'd been ill, uh, some sort of breakdown these clever people went in for, and that might account for his uncharacteristic idea of hiring a boat and travelling on canals. On the whole, John had to admit, it was a good idea. He'd never been on a canal in his life, although he had been in almost every kind of boat, and thought he knew a good deal about them, so much indeed that he had embarked on the venture in a light-hearted, uh, almost patronising manner. But it was not nearly as simple as he had imagined. Clifford, of course, knew nothing about boats, but he had admitted that almost everything had gone wrong with a kind of devilish versatility which had almost frightened him. However, that was all over, and John, who had learned painfully all about the boat and her engine, felt that the former at least had run her gamut of disaster. They had run out of food, out of petrol and out of water, had dropped their windlass into the deepest lock, and, more humiliating, their boat hook into a side pond. The head had come off the hammer. They had been disturbed for one whole night by a curious rustling in the cabin, like a rat in a paper bag, when there was no paper, and, so far as they knew, no rat. The battery had failed, and had had to be recharged. Clifford had put his elbow through an already cracked window in the cabin. A large piece of rope had wound itself around the propeller with a malignant intensity which required three men and half a morning to unravel and so on, until now there was really nothing left to go wrong, unless one of them drowned, and surely it was impossible to drown in a canal. I suppose one might easily drown in a lock, he asked aloud. We must be careful not to fall into one, Clifford replied. What? John steered with fierce concentration, and never heard anything people said to him for the first time, almost on principle. I said we must be careful not to fall into a lock. Oh, well, there aren't any more now until after the junction. Anyway, we haven't yet, so there's really no reason why we should start now. I only wanted to know whether we'd drown if we did. Sharon might. What? Sharon might. Better warn her, then. She seems agile enough. His concentrated frown returned, and he settled down again to the wheel. John didn't mind where they went, or what happened, so long as he handled the boat, and all things considered, he handled her remarkably well. Clifford planned and John steered. 
and until two days ago they had both quarrelled and argued over a smoking and unusually temperamental primus, which reminded Clifford of Sharon. Her advent and the weather were really the two unadulterated strokes of good fortune. There had been no rain, and Sharon had, as it were, dropped from the blue onto the boat, where she speedily restored domestic order, stimulated evening conversation, and touched the whole venture with her attractive being. The requisite number of miles each day were achieved, the boat behaved itself, and admirable meals were steadily and regularly prepared. She had, in fact, identified herself with the journey without making the slightest effort to control it, a talent which many women were supposed in theory to possess when, in fact, Clifford reflected gloomily most of them were bored with the whole thing or trying to dominate it. Her advent was a remarkable, almost a miraculous piece of luck. He had, after a particularly ill-fed day and their failure to dine at a small hotel, desperately telephoned all the women he knew who seemed in the least suitable, and they were surprisingly few, with no success. They had spent a miserable evening, John determined to argue about everything and he, Clifford, refusing to speak, until, both in a fine state of emotional tension, they had turned in for the night. While John snored, Clifford had lain distraught, his resentment and despair circling round John and then touching his own smallest and most random thoughts until his mind found no refuge and he was left, divided from it, hostile and afraid, watching it in terror racing on in the dark like some malignant machine utterly out of his control. The next day things had proved no better between them and they had continued throughout the morning in a silence which was only occasionally and elaborately broken. They had tied up for lunch beside a wood which hung heavy and magnificent over the canal. There was a small clearing beside which John then proposed to moor, but Clifford failed to achieve the considerable leap necessary to stop the boat, and they had drifted helplessly past it. John flung him a line, but it was not until the boat was secured and they were safely in the cabin that the storm had broken. John, in attempting to light the primus, spilt a quantity of paraffin on Clifford's bunk, Instantly, all his despair of the previous evening had contracted. He hated John so much that he could have murdered him. They both lost their tempers, and for the ensuing hour and a half had conducted a blazing quarrel, which, even at the time, secretly horrified them both in its intensity. It had finally ended with John striding out of the cabin, there being no more to say. He had returned almost at once, however. I say, Clifford, come and look at this. At what? Outside on the bank. For some unknown reason Clifford did get up and did look, lying face downwards quite still on the ground with her arms clasping the trunk of a large tree, was a girl. How long she been there? She's asleep. She can't have been asleep all the time. She must have heard some of what we said. Anyway, who is she? What's she doing here? Clifford looked at her again. She was wearing a dark twill shirt and dark trousers, and her hair hung over her face so it was almost invisible. I don't know. I suppose she's alive. John jumped cautiously ashore. Yes, she's alive, all right. Funny way to lie. Well, it's none of our business anyway. Anyone can lie on a bank if they want to. Yes, but she must have come in the middle of our row, and it does seem queer to stay and then go to sleep. Extraordinary, said Clifford wearily. Nothing was really extraordinary, he felt. Nothing. Are we moving on? Let's eat first. I'll do it. Oh, I'll do it. The girl stirred, unclasped her arms and sat up. 
They had all stared at each other for a moment, the girl slowly pushing the hair from her forehead. Then she had said, If you give me a meal, I'll cook it. Afterwards, they had left her to wash up and walked about the wood, while Clifford suggested to John that they ask the girl to join them. Sure she'd come, he said. She didn't seem at all clear about what she was doing. We can't just pick somebody up out of a wood, said John, scandalised. Where do you suggest we pick them up? If we don't have someone, this holiday will be a failure. We don't know anything about her. I can't say that matters very much. She seems to cook well. We can at least ask her. All right, ask her then. She won't come. When they returned to the boat, she had finished the washing up and was sitting on the floor of the cockpit with her arms stretched behind her head. Clifford asked her and she accepted as though she had known them a long time and they were simply inviting her to tea. Well, but look here, said John, thoroughly taken aback. What about your things? My things? She looked inquiringly and a little defensively from one to the other. Clothes and so on. Oh, haven't you got any? Are you a, a, a gypsy or something? Where'd you come from? I'm not a gypsy, she began patiently, when Clifford, thoroughly embarrassed and ashamed, interrupted her. Really, it's none of our business who you are, and there's absolutely no need for us to ask you anything. I'm very glad you'll come with us, although I feel we should warn you that we are new to this life and anything might happen. No need to warn me, she said, and smiled gratefully at him. After that, they both felt bound to ask her nothing. John, because he was afraid of being made to look foolish by Clifford, and Clifford, because he had stopped John. Good Lord, we shall never get rid of her, and she'll fuss about condensation, John had muttered aggressively as he started the engine. But she was very young and didn't fuss about anything. She had told them her name and settled down immediately and easily, gentle, assured and unselfconscious to a degree, remarkable in one so young. They were never sure how much she'd overheard them, for she gave no sign of having heard anything, a friendly but uncommunicative creature. The map on the engine box started to flap, and immediately John asked, Where are we? Haven't been watching, I'm afraid. Wait a minute. We just passed under a railway bridge, John said helpfully. Right, yes, uh, about four miles from the junction, I think. What's the time? 5.30. Which way are we going when we get to the junction? We haven't time for the big loop. I must be back in London by the 15th. The alternative is to go up as far as the basin and then simply turn round and come back. And who wants to do that? Well, we'll know the route then. It'll be much easier coming back. Clifford did not reply. He was not attracted by the route being easier and he wanted to complete his original plan. Let's wait until we get there, Sharon appeared with tea and marmalade sandwiches. All right, let's wait, Clifford was relieved. It'll be almost dark by 6.30. I think we ought to have a plan, John said. Thank you, Sharon. Have tea first. She curled herself onto the floor with her back to the cabin doors and a mug in her hands. They were passing rows of little houses with gardens that backed onto the canal. They were long, narrow strips streaked with cinder paths and crowded with vegetables and chicken huts, fruit trees and perambulators sometimes ending with fat white ducks and sometimes in a tiny patch of grass with a bench on it. Would you rather keep ducks or sit on a bench? asked Clifford. Keep ducks, said John promptly. More useful. Sharon wouldn't mind which she did, would you, Sharon? He liked saying her name, Clifford noticed. You could be happy anywhere, couldn't you? He seemed to be presenting her with the widest possible choice. I might be anywhere, she answered after a moment's thought. Well, you happen to be on a canal, and very nice for us. 
In a wood, and then on a canal, she replied contentedly, bending her smooth dark head over her mug. Going to be fine tomorrow, said John. He was always a little embarrassed at any mention of how they found her and his subsequent rudeness. Yes, I like it when the whole sky is so red and burning that it begins to be cold. Are you cold? said John, wanting to worry about it. But she tucked her dark shirt into her trousers and answered composedly, Oh no, I'm never cold. They drank their tea in a comfortable silence. Clifford started to read his map and then said they were almost onto another sheet. New country, he said with satisfaction. Never been here before. You make it sound like an exploration, doesn't he, Sharon? said John. Is that a bad thing? She collected the mugs. I'm going to put these away. You'll call me if I'm wanted for anything. And she went into the cabin again. There was a second's pause, a minute tribute to her departure, and lighting cigarettes, they settled down to stare at the long, silent stretch of water ahead. John thought about Sharon. He thought rather desperately that really they still knew nothing about her, and that when they went back to London they would in all probability never see her again. Perhaps Clifford would fall in love with her and she would naturally reciprocate because she was so young and Clifford was reputed to be so fascinating and intelligent and because women were always foolish and loved the wrong man. He thought all these things with equal intensity, glanced cautiously at Clifford and supposed he was thinking about her, then wondered what she would be like in London clad in anything else but her dark trousers and shirt. The engine coughed and he turned to it in relief. Clifford was making frantic calculations of time and distance, stretching their time and diminishing the distance, and groaning that with the utmost optimism they couldn't be made to fit. He was interrupted by John swearing at the engine, and then, for no particular reason, he remembered Sharon and reflected with pleasure how easily she left the mind when she was not present, how she neither obsessed nor possessed one in her absence, but was charming to see. The sun had almost set when they reached the junction, and John slowed down to neutral while they made up their minds. To the left was a straight cut which involved the longer journey originally planned, and curving away to the right was the short arm which John advocated. The canal was fringed with rushes, and there was one small cottage with no light in it. Clifford went into the cabin to tell Sharon where they were, and then, as they drifted slowly in the middle of the junction, John suddenly shouted, Clifford, what's the third turning? There are only two, Clifford reappeared. Sharon's busy with dinner. No, look, surely that's another cut. Clifford stared ahead. Can't see it. Just to the right of the cottage, look. It's not so dark as all that. Then Clifford saw it very plainly. It seemed to wind away from the cottage on a fairly steep curve, and the rushes shrouding it from anything but the closest view were taller than the rest. Have another look at the map. I'll reverse for a bit. I found it. It's just another arm. Probably been abandoned, said Clifford eventually. The boat had swung round, and now they could see the continuance of the curve, dully gleaming ahead and banked by reeds. Well, what shall we do? It's getting dark. Let's go up a little way and moor. Nice quiet mooring, with some nice quiet mud banks, said John grimly. Nobody uses that. How do you know? Well, look at it. All those rushes and it's sure to be thick with weed. Don't go up it then, but we shall go aground if we drift about like this. I don't mind going up it, said John doggedly. What about Sharon? What about her? Tell her about it. We found a third turning, Clifford called above the noise of the primus through the cabin door. One you hadn't expected? 
Yes, it looks very wild. We were thinking of going up it. Didn't you say you wanted to explore? She smiled at him. You were quite ready to try it. I warn you, we shall probably run harder ground. Look out for bumps with the primus. I am quite ready, and I'm quite sure we shan't run aground, she answered with charming confidence in their skill. They moved slowly forward in the dusk. Why they didn't run aground, Clifford could not imagine. John really was damned good at it. The canal wound and wound, and the reeds grew not only thick on each bank, but in clumps across the canal. The light drained out of the sky into the water, and slowly drowned there. The trees and the banks became heavy and black. Clifford began to clear things away from the heavy dew which had begun to rise. After two journeys, he remained in the cabin, while John crawled on alone. Once, on a bend, John thought he saw a range of hills ahead with lights on them, but when he was round the curve and had time to look again, he could see no hills, only a dark, indeterminate waste of country stretched ahead. He was beginning to consider the necessity of mooring when they came to a bridge, and shortly after, he saw a dark mass which he took to be houses. When the boat had crawled for another fifty yards or so, he stopped the engine and drifted in absolute silence to the bank. The houses, about half a dozen of them, were much nearer than he had first imagined, but there were no lights to be seen. Distance is always deceptive in the dark, he thought, and jumped ashore with a bowline. When, a few minutes later, he took a sounding with the boat hook, the water proved unexpectedly deep, and he concluded that they had, by incredible good fortune, moored at the village wharf. He made everything fast and joined the others in the cabin with mixed feelings of pride and resentment that he should have achieved so much under so difficult conditions, and that they, by they he meant Clifford, should have contributed so little towards the achievement. He found Clifford reading Bradshaw's Guide to the Canals and Navigable Rivers, in one corner, and Sharon, with her hair pushed back behind her ears, bending over the primus with a knife. Her ears are pale, exactly the colour of her face, he thought. He wanted to touch them, then felt horribly ashamed and hated Clifford. Let's have a look at Bradshaw, he said, as though he hadn't noticed Clifford reading it. But Clifford handed him the book in the most friendly manner, remarking that he couldn't see where they were. In fact, you have surpassed yourself with your brilliant navigation. We seem to be miles from anywhere. What about your famous ordnance? It's not on any sheet I have. The new one I thought we should use only covers the loop we planned. There's precisely three quarters of a mile of this canal shown on the present sheet, and then we run off the map. I suppose there must once have been trade here, but I can't imagine what or where. I expect things change, said Sharon. Here's the meal. How can you see to cook? asked John, eyeing his plate ravenously. There is a candle. Yes, but we've selfishly appropriated that. Should I need more light? she asked, and looked troubled. There's no should about it, I just don't know how you do it, that's all. Chips, exactly the right colour, and you never drop anything. It's marvellous. She smiled a little uncertainly at him, and lit another candle. Luck, probably, she said, and set it on the table. They ate their meal, and John told them about the mooring. Some sort of village. I think we've moored at the wharf. I couldn't find any rings without the torch, so I've used the anchor. This small shaft was intended for Clifford, who had dropped a spare torch battery in the washing-up bowl and forgotten to buy another. But it was only a small shaft, and immediately afterwards John felt much better. 
His aggression slowly left him, and he felt nothing but a peaceful and well-fed affection for the other two. Extraordinary cut-off this is, he remarked over coffee. It's very pleasant in here, warm and extremely full of us. Yes, I know. Quiet village, though, you must admit. I shall believe in your village when I see it. Then you would believe in it. No, we wouldn't, Sharon. Not if he didn't want to and couldn't find it on the map. That map. The conversation turned again to their remoteness and to how cut off one liked to be and at what point it ceased to be desirable to boats, telephones and finally canals, which Clifford maintained possessed the perfect proportions of urbanity and solitude. Hours later, when they turned in for the night, Clifford reviewed the conversation, together with others they'd had, and remembered with surprise how little Sharon had actually said. She listened to everything, and occasionally, when they appealed to her, made some small, composed remark, which was oddly at variance with their passionate interest. She has a, an elusive quality of freshness about her, he thought, which is neither naive nor stupid nor dull, and she invokes no responsibility. She doesn't want us to know what she was, or why we found her as we did, and, curiously, I, at least, don't want to know. She is what women ought to be, he concluded with sudden pleasure, and slept. He woke the next morning to find it very late, and stretched out his hand to wake John. We've all overslept. Look at the time. Good Lord, better wake Sharon. Sharon lay between them on the floor which they had seeded her because, oddly enough, it was the widest and most comfortable bed. She seemed profoundly asleep, but at the mention of her name sat up immediately and rose, almost as though she had not been asleep at all. The morning routine, which involving the clothing of three people and shaving of two of them, was necessarily a long and complicated business, began. Sharon boiled water, and Clifford, grumbling gently, hoisted himself out of his bunk and repaired with a steaming jug to the cockpit. He put the jug on a seat, lifted the canvas awning, and leaned out. It was absolutely grey and still. A little white mist hung over the canal, and the country stretched out desolate and unkempt on every side, with no sign of a living creature. The village, he thought suddenly, John's village, and was possessed of a perilous uncertainty and fear. I'm getting worse, he thought. This holiday is doing me no good. I'm mad. I imagined that he said we moored by a village wharf. For several seconds he stood gripping the gunwale and searching desperately for anything, huts, a clump of trees, which could in the darkness have been mistaken for a village. But there was nothing near the boat except tall, rank rushes which did not move at all. Then, when his suspense was becoming unbearable, John joined him with another steaming jug of water. We shan't get anywhere at this rate, he began, and then, hello, where's my village? I was wondering that, said Clifford. He could almost have wept with relief and quickly began to shave, deeply ashamed of his private panic. Can't understand it, John was saying. It was no joke, Clifford decided, as he listened to his hearty, puzzled ruminations. At breakfast, John continued to speculate upon what he had, or hadn't seen and Sharon listened intently while she filled the coffee-pot and cut bread. Once or twice she met Clifford's eye with a glance of discreet amusement. "'I must be mad, or else the whole place is haunted,' finished John comfortably. These two possibilities seemed to relieve him of any further anxiety in the matter, as he ate a huge breakfast and set about greasing the engine. "'Well,' said Clifford, when he was alone with Sharon, "'what do you make of that?' 
It's easy to be deceived in such matters, she answered perfunctorily. Evidently, still, John is an unlikely candidate, you must admit. Here, I'll help you dry. Oh, no, it's what I'm here for. Not entirely, I hope. Not entirely. She smiled and relinquished the cloth. John eventually announced that they were ready to start. Clifford, who had assumed that they were to recover their journey, was surprised and a little alarmed to find John intent upon continuing it. He seemed undeterred by the state of the canal, which, as Clifford immediately pointed out, rendered navigation both arduous and unrewarding. He announced that the harder it was, the more he liked it, adding very firmly that anyway, we must see what happens. We shan't have time to do anything else. Thought you wanted to explore. I do, but what do you think, Sharon? I think John will have to be a very good navigator to manage that. She indicated the rush and weed-ridden reach before them. Do you think it's possible? Of course it's possible. I'll probably need some help, though. I'll help you, she said. So on they went. They made incredibly slow progress. John enjoys showing off his powers to her, thought Clifford, half amused, half exasperated, as he searched for the fourth time in an hour to scrape weeds off the propeller. Sharon eventually retired to cook lunch. Surprising amount of water here, John said suddenly. Oh? Well, I mean, with all this weed and stuff, you'd expect the canal to have silted up. I'm sure nobody uses it. The whole thing's extraordinary. Is it too late in the year for birds? asked Clifford later. No, don't think so. Why? I haven't heard one. Have you? I haven't noticed, I'm afraid. There's someone anyway. First sign of life. An old man stood near the bank watching them. He was dressed in corduroy and wore a straw hat. Good morning, shouted John as they drew nearer. He made no reply but inclined his head slightly. He seemed very old. He was leaning on a scythe, and as they drew almost level with him, he turned away and began slowly cutting rushes. A pile of them lay neatly stacked beside him. Where does this canal go? Is there a village farther on? Clifford and John asked simultaneously. He seemed not to hear, and as they chugged steadily past, Clifford was about to suggest that they stop and ask again, when he called after them, Three miles up, you'll find a village. Three miles up, that is, and turned away to his rushes again. Well, now we know something anyway, said John. We don't even know what the village is called. Soon find out. Only three miles. Three miles, said Clifford darkly. That might mean anything. Do you want to turn back? Oh, no, not now. I want to see this village now. My curiosity is thoroughly aroused. Shouldn't think there'll be anything to see. Never been in such a wild spot. Look at it. Clifford looked at it, half wilderness, half marsh, dank and grey and still, with single trees bare of their leaves, clumps of hawthorn that might once have been hedge, sparse and sharp with berries, and in the distance hills and an occasional wood. These were all one could see beyond the lines of rushes which edged the canal, winding ahead. They stopped for a lengthy meal, which Sharon described as lunch and tea together, it being so late, and then, appalled at how little daylight was left, continued. We've hardly been any distance at all, said John forlornly. Good thing there were no locks. I shouldn't think they'd have worked if there were. Much more than three miles, he said, about two hours later. Darkness was descending, and it was becoming very cold. Better stop, said Clifford. Not yet. I'm determined to reach that village. Dinner's ready, said Sharon sadly. It'll be cold. Let's stop. You have your meal. I'll call if I want you. 
Sharon looked at them and Clifford shrugged his shoulders. Come on, I will. I'm tired of this. They shut the cabin doors. John could hear the pleasant clatter of their meal, and just as he was coming to the end of the decent interval which he felt must elapse before he gave in, they passed under a bridge, the first of the day, and clutching at any straw, he immediately assumed that it prefaced the village. I think we're nearly there, he called. Clifford opened the door. The village? No, a bridge. Can't be far now. You're mad, John. It's pitch dark. You can see the bridge, though. Yes, why not moor under it? Too late. Can't turn round in this light, and she's not good at reversing. Must be nearly there. You go back. I don't need you. Clifford shut the door again. He was beginning to feel irritated with John behaving in this childish manner and showing off to impress Sharon. It was amusing in the morning, but really he was carrying it a bit far. Let him manage the thing himself then. When, a few minutes later, John shouted that they had reached the sought-after village, Clifford merely pulled back the little curtain over a cabin window, rubbed the condensation and remarked that he could see nothing. No light, at least. He's happy anyhow, said Sharon peaceably. Gonna have a look around, said John, slamming the cabin doors and blowing his nose. Surely you'll eat first, if you've left anything. My God, it's cold. It's unnaturally cold. We won't be held responsible if he dies of exposure, will we? said Clifford. She looked at him, hesitated a moment but didn't reply, and placing a steaming plate in front of John, she doesn't want us to quarrel, Clifford thought, and with an effort of friendliness he asked, what does tonight's village look like? Much the same, only one or two houses, you know. But the old man called it a village. He seemed uncommunicative. Clifford thought he was sulking. But, after eating the meal, he suddenly announced, almost apologetically, I don't think I shall walk around. I'm absolutely worn out. You go if you like. I shall start turning in. All right, I'll have a look. You've had a hard day. Clifford pulled on a coat and went outside. It was, as John said, incredibly cold and almost overwhelmingly silent. The clouds hung very low over the boat and mist was rising everywhere from the ground but he could dimly discern the black huddle of cottages lying on a little slope above the bank against which the boat was moored. He did actually set foot on shore, but his shoe sank immediately into a marshy hole. He withdrew it and changed his mind. The prospect of groping round those dark and silent houses became suddenly distasteful, and he joined the others with the excuse that it was too cold and that he also was tired. A little later he lay half-conscious in a kind of restless trance, with John sleeping heavily opposite him. His mind seemed full of foreboding, fear of something unknown and intangible. He thought of them lying in warmth on the cold secret canal, with desolate miles of water behind and probably beyond. The old man and the silent houses. John cut off on a sleep, and Sharon, who lay on the floor beside him. Immediately he was filled with a sudden and most violent desire for her, even to touch her, for her to know that he was awake. Sharon, he whispered, Sharon, Sharon, and stretched down his fingers to her in the dark. Instantly her hand was in his, each smooth and separate finger warmly clasped. She didn't move or speak, but his relief was indescribable, and for a long while he lay in an ecstasy of delight and peace until his mind slipped imperceptibly with her fingers into oblivion. When he woke he found John absent, 
and Sharon standing over the primus. He's outside, she said. Have I overslept again? It's late. I'm boiling water for you now. We'd better try and get some supplies this morning. There is no village, she said in a matter-of-fact tone. What? John says not, but we have enough food, if you don't mind this queer milk from a tin. No, I don't mind, he replied, watching her affectionately. It doesn't really surprise me, he added, after a moment. The village? No village. Yesterday I should have minded awfully. Is that you, do you think? Perhaps. It doesn't surprise you about the village at all, does it? Do you love me? She glanced at him quickly, a little shocked, and said quietly, Don't you know? Then added, It doesn't surprise me. John seemed very disturbed. I don't like it, he kept saying as they shaved. Can't understand it at all. I could have sworn there were houses last night. You saw them, didn't you? Yes. Well, don't you think it's very odd? I do. Everything looks the same as yesterday morning. I don't like it. It's an adventure, you must admit. Yes, but I've had enough of it. I suggest we turn back. Sharon suddenly appeared, and seeing her, Clifford knew that he didn't want to go back. He remembered her saying, Didn't you say you wanted to explore? She would think him weak-hearted if they turned back all those dreary miles with nothing to show for it. At breakfast, he exerted himself in persuading John to the same opinion. John finally agreed to one more day but in turn extracted a promise that they would then go back, whatever happened. Clifford agreed to this, and Sharon, for some inexplicable reason, laughed at them both, so that eventually they prepared to set off in an atmosphere of general good humour. Sharon began to fill the water tank with their four-gallon can. It seemed too heavy for her, and John dropped the starter and leapt to her assistance. She let him take the can and held the funnel for him. Together they watched the rich, even stream of water disappear. You shouldn't try to do that, he said. You'll hurt yourself. Gypsies do it, she said. I'm awfully sorry about that. You know I am. I shouldn't have minded if you'd thought I was a gypsy. I do like you, he said, not looking at her. I do like you. You won't disappear altogether when this is over, will you? You probably won't find I'll disappear for good, she replied comfortingly. Come on, shouted Clifford. It's all right for him to talk to her, John thought, as he struggled to swing the starter. He just doesn't like me doing it, and he wished, as he had begun often to do, that Clifford was not there. They had spasmodic engine trouble in the morning, which slowed them down, and the consequent halts with the difficulty they experienced of mooring anywhere, the banks seemed nothing but marsh, were depressing and cold. Their good spirits evaporated, By lunchtime John was plainly irritable and frightened, and Clifford had begun to hate the grey, silent land on either side, with the woods and hills which remained so consistently distant. They both wanted to give it up by then, but John felt bound to stick to his promise, and Clifford was secretly sure that Sharon wished to continue. While she was preparing another late lunch, they saw a small boy who stood on what had once been the towpath watching them, He was bareheaded, wore corduroy and had no shoes. He held a long reed, the end of which he chewed as he stared at them. Ask him where we are, said John, and Clifford asked. He took the reed out of his mouth but didn't reply. Where do you live then? asked Clifford as they drew almost level with him. I told you, three miles up, he said. And then he gave a sudden little shriek of fear 
dropped the reed and turned to run down the bank the way they had come. Once he looked back, stumbled and fell, picked himself up sobbing and ran faster. Sharon had appeared with lunch a moment before, and together they listened to his gasping cries growing fainter and fainter until he'd run himself out of their sight. What on earth frightened him, said Clifford. I don't know, unless it was Sharon popping out of the cabin like that. Nonsense, but he was a very frightened little boy, and I say, do you realise? He was a very foolish little boy, Sharon interrupted. She was angry, Clifford noticed with surprise, really angry, white and trembling, and with a curious expression which he didn't like. We might have got something out of him, said John sadly. Too late now, Sharon said. She had quite recovered herself. They saw no one else. They journeyed on throughout the afternoon. It grew colder, and at the same time more and more airless and still. When the light began to fail, Sharon disappeared as usual to the cabin. The canal became more tortuous, and John asked Clifford to help him with the turns. Clifford complied unwillingly. He didn't want to leave Sharon, but as it had been he who had insisted on their continuing, he could hardly refuse. The turns were nerve-wracking, as the canal was very narrow and the light grew worse and worse. All right if we stop soon, asked John eventually. Stop now if you like. Well, we'll try and find a tree to tie up to. This swamp's awful. Can't think how that child ran. That child, began Clifford anxiously. But John, who had been equally unnerved by the incident and didn't want to think about it, interrupted. Is there a tree ahead anywhere? Can't see one. There's a hell of a bend coming, though, almost back on itself. Better slow down a bit more. Can't we right down as it is? They crawled round, clinging to the outside bank, which seemed always to approach them, its rushes to rub against their bows, although the wheel was hard over. John grunted with relief, and they both stared ahead for the next turn. They were presented with the most terrible spectacle. The canal immediately broadened until no longer a canal, but a sheet, an infinity of water stretched ahead, oily, silent, and still, as far as the eye could see, with no country edging it, nothing but water to the low grey sky above it. John had almost immediately cut out the engine, and now he tried desperately to start it again in order to turn round. Clifford instinctively glanced behind them. He saw no canal at all. No inlet, but grasping and close to the stern of the boat, the reeds and rushes of a marshy waste closing in behind them. He stumbled to the cabin doors and pulled them open. It was very neat and tidy in there, but empty. Only one stern door of the cabin was free of its catch, and it flapped irregularly backwards and forwards with their movements in the boat. There was no sign of Sharon at all. Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody dies, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked drawer today, didn't you? So that was Three Miles Up by Elizabeth Jane Howard. Now, Elizabeth Jane, this is from a book um, by Tartarus Press, a reprint. Tartarus Press, if you don't know them, do these lovely 
um, editions, hardback editions. They're not cheap, but they're lovely. Three Miles Up, another strange stories by Elizabeth Jane Howard. They're from Leyburn in Yorkshire, so they're not too far from me, fellow North English folk. So, um, yeah, so I think, anyway, let me say something from, they do, there's a great introduction to this uh, uh, book by the Tartarus passed by Glenn Cavaliero, and uh, it's worth me pleasure, not pleasure as in quoting it. Um, Elizabeth Jane Howard is not usually associated with tales of the supernatural because she was a, a well-regarded novelist, even in the autobiography, so evocatively intact titled Slipstream, it is only in passing that she refers to We Are the Dark, and yet that collection of three of her own stories and three by Robert Aikman, which had been published in 1951, was to become a much sought-after item by collectors of uncanny fiction. The absence of any indication as to the authorship of individual stories lent the book an additional touch of mystery. Um, in 1999, Aikman's collection collected strange stories, it identifies his um, three stories in uh, We Are For The Dark as The Trains, The Insufficient Answer and The View. Trains is a very, very weird story. You know, I'm a big fan of Robert Aikman. Um, he is the master of the unsettling. Um, just the... Uh, I, I see him a bit like Bruno Schultz and Kafka almost, uh, as much as he is an heir to the English language short story, ghost story tradition. Um, a partnership of equals, says Glenn Caballero, that We Are For The Dark was no mere collaboration, but a partnership between equals. They were having an affair at the time, apparently. So I don't know how exactly they met, and somebody may know this, but Aikman, as you may know, as well as being a, a literary figure, was involved in the Inland Waterways Association, the Canals Association. Now, Elizabeth Jane Howard was secretary uh, for a while of that organisation. Another memorable ghost story writer was uh, Tom Rolt, LTC Rolt, who's also involved in that. So there's something about the Inland Waterways Association. Now, if you've actually ever been on a canal, I love going on the canals, and every year we go on a canal, we don't have our own boat. There was, last year we were in Northamptonshire and moored up, and in the middle of the night, these footsteps appeared, and in the middle of nowhere, it was about 3am in the morning, these footsteps appeared clearly on the towpath, or were heard clearly by me in the middle of the night, in the dark, in the very, very dark, because you're in the middle of nowhere, and um, it walked up deliberately and stopped outside the boat, and um, then didn't go on any further, they just stopped, they stopped but didn't start again, you know, so they are kind of weird things. The um, Aikman talks about, um, this is Glenn Cavaliero talking about Aikman, the physical ambience predominates in his stories. His settings can seem veritably palpable. In the trains, for example, the isolated moorland house is made the more unnerving by its familiar stuffy drabness. And that is Aikman to me, the familiar stuffy, very kind of 1950s, 1960s England, UK, which I... Um, Remember, you know, not the 50s really, in the 60s, the remnants, they were still there, the buildings were still there and that kind of, the social mores and, and all of that kind of stuff um, and twists it, you know. Um, 
where Glenn Cavaliero goes on to say, where Elizabeth Jane Howard's stories are concerned, however, one is made conscious of design, coherence, deliberate artistry. Her novels, so skillfully crafted, so rich and frequently so humorous in their surface detail, are rooted in the upper-middle-class world favoured by many other 20th-century women novelists. But without drawing on any element of the supernatural as such, they subject that world to a breath of strangeness. And he talks about um, her proper writing, if you like, not ghost stories. Of her thir three contributions to We Are for the Dark, the most conventional is left luggage while belonging to the same imaginative territory as Oliver Onion's Masterly, The Beckoning of the Fair One, which I've done. If you haven't heard that, go and listen to it. It's a great story. Um, and and, and Cavaliero talks about how um, it, it, there's a resonance with Henry James and Elizabeth Bowen's stories. We haven't done those. We did um, Three Miles Up. So, this is what Glenn Calviero has to say. Whereas Mr. Wrong, another story in We Are For The Dark, induces a feeling of uncontrollable mobility, it is slowness, not speed, which constitutes the dominant tone of Three Miles Up, which in view of Howard's own involvement with Robert Aikman's Inland Waterways Association, reveals an imaginative affinity between the two writers. Yes. It is also the most parabolic of these tales, whatever that means. And it, I guess it's it's uh, what he means is maybe it, it goes on a parabola, so it, it's like a, it flies out and returns slowly in an arc. Perhaps it returns. I'm not sure it does return. I think it's linear, to be honest. It goes from one place and ends in a very different place. I'll say what I think about it shortly. Um, so the most an informed use of detail ensures the readers a primus is a is a stove. The the boat's much more. Um, up to date now they have hot water and they have proper cookers uh, you know gas cookers and things but you know they clearly in these days it was a bit more primitive it was more like camping on a boat um so an increasing eeriness into absolute mystery its smooth progress and the suggestion of such encoded symbolism as the figure of the old man with a scythe distinguishes it from aikman's work this is a tale told by a writer who knows where that tale is going even if we do not the psychic tension between the two protagonists and the fear generated by the sight of fear, the fear generated by the sight of fear when the small boy catches sight of the enigmatic Sharon, are but two elements that go to make three miles up as much an interior drama as the account of a trip on a canal boat. It is beautifully judged, a beautifully judged instance of the kind of story Aikman would refer to as being strange rather than ghostly. Fair, fair point. For traditional, yeah, for traditional ghost stories are based on a presumption of physical stability, the presence of the past making itself felt through energies which interact with the unfortunate objects of their visitation. This story, this the story, this is rooted in a sense of place and its invasive elements are confined within it. No, the normal ghost story. But Howard presents one with the uprootedness with a mobile world in which it is no longer possible to know the security of, security of permanence. One without any overarching metaphysical reality to ratify a feeling of purpose misapprehended or withheld. It is the 20th century world of relativities. The spectral manifestation she does not so much describe as deftly indicate are not meant to be are not to be domesticated within within a predetermined logical narrative. Well, I think that's Aikman as well. Aikman has these weirdnesses and does not comfort you by explaining them. If you hear me talk about this, this is a big theme for me, you know. And it, for me, it's most disturbing. I found this story quite disturbing. Um, uh, we are in the dark indeed, 
what do I think? I'll tell you something about her because we haven't really spoken about her and then I'll come back to what I think about the story. So a brief biography. Elizabeth Jane Howard, born March 26, 1923 in London, England, was a distinguished English novelist known for her versatile literary contributions. Howard began her career as an actress and model before venturing into writing in 1947. Throughout her prolific career, she penned 12 novels, with her most acclaimed work being the five-novel family saga, The Cazalet Chronicles. I think maybe Cazalet. Her narrative prowess was not confined to family sagas, as exemplified by her, exemplified by her collaboration with Robert Aikman in, on the collection We Are For The Dark, Six Ghost Stories, published in 1951. Although she gained widespread recognition for her family sagas, Howard's foray into the supernatural, as evidenced by Three Miles Up and other stories, showcased her ability to masterfully blend genres and explore the complexities of human relationships. She was secretary of the Inland Waterways Association, as we have mentioned. Ghost stories and the Inland Waterways Association share a curious connection, entwining, intertwining literature and the preservation of Britain's canal heritage. Fair play. I've just written one called The Thing on the Towpath, funnily enough. Be actually, before I came across this story... Um, this connection is particularly evident through no notable figures such as Robert Aikman, LTC Rolt and Elizabeth Jane Howard, each leaving a unique mark on both realms. Elizabeth Jane Howard's creative collaboration with Robert Aikman resulted in the publication they were having an, an affair at the time. Robert Aikman describes her as one of the most brilliant women and a bit of a looker, so beautiful that continuous problems arose, especially when, at a later date, she joined the Association's Council. Little in the way of completely normal business was possible or sensible when she was in the room. By merely existing, she promoted loves and hates, which, through no fault of hers, left some who felt them fevered and wasted. I think you're talking for yourself there, Robert. Um, so, what do I think of this story? I, I, you know, not by coincidence, but just in the passage of time, I've just read two books, one leading from the other. I read um, Jacques Vallée's passage to uh, Passport to Magonia. If you don't know that book, uh, he was a, he's still alive. He's 85, I think. He's a French computer scientist and astronomer, and he worked with NASA. Did he? And he worked with the USAF anyway, and he was part of uh, Project Blue Book. And he came to the conclusion that um, the things that were being seen, which he didn't doubt, were, there was too much evidence for them, were um, not exactly extraterrestrial visitors. And he found a huge overlap with myths going back, myths and stories going back across the world through recorded uh, history and literature, whereby um, strange lights in the sky, strange tricksy visitants who take things from our world who you mustn't eat their food the fairy folk the good people you know so uh, um that led me to uh, john keel's the mothman prophecies which uh, is his account of hundreds of sightings of these very weird things happening in the ohio valley in the late 60s uh, culminating in point pleasant bridges um collapse and death there um there was a, a movie made of it with um, robert gear Richard Gere, oh goodness, sorry. Uh, and um, so I'm very much into the perilous realm, you know, at the moment. Uh, I read, um, what's his name, Reverend Kirk's um, Commonwealth of the Elves, Fairies and stuff. He was from um, Aberfoyle in, uh, in the Trossachs. Uh, and um, so, you know, so I'm kind of convinced, not convinced, but I'm persuaded by their argument that um, these visitations that we're getting now through UFOs are, are the fairy folk still, the good people. And 
they're not to be trusted. They can be beautiful, they can be really helpful, but they are not to be trusted. So it seems to me, that what I thought about the story, first of all, is these two blokes, fair enough, on a canal boat, fair enough, men love camping. Um, and it must have been a lot more primitive, the canal network in that time. It's a lot of work's been done on it since for leisure, you know. So there are places you can water up and moor up, and there's all sorts now. Um, you can still get away from it all. Anyway, I'm selling. If you haven't been, go. Um, if you're that, if you're inclined that way, if you like boats and things. Anyway, so so they meet Sharon, this mysterious, beautiful female stranger who is um, magnetic to them in lots of ways. In in a kind of sidestepping way, it isn't like, oh my god, she's beautiful. I've fallen in love with it. It kind of intrudes itself. This woman. Why did they think a woman was asleep on a canal path? A beautiful young woman with dark hair. Why did they think, right, we need... I mean, this maybe is, says something. I mean, she's a woman who wrote this. Maybe she's making fun of men, to be fair, of, of the 50s uh, and the 40s. Like, you know, we can't cook. Let's get a woman, you know. And her job, she comes on board. They seem to think there's nothing wrong in, in abducting... She, she's not abducted, but inviting a strange young woman who they know nothing about to come onto their boat to simply cook for them. And I guess do a bit of cleaning and washing up. They see nothing wrong with that. Wow. How times have changed. I don't even know, because I don't live in those times, whether that would have been seen as abnormal in those days. My uncle, Adrian, who, um, when, when, he, when his wife died, my Auntie Joan, he didn't know where the pans were. And he was, uh, of, of that generation, I think that he was born probably in 1930 or so. Uh, so... Uh, uh, you know, kind of decade after her, but you know, and he was that kind of bloke. Really, uh, he was he was a great lad, uh, and I'm, I was fond of him. But um, so, why did they think that was okay? That is weird to us. Maybe it was weird to them as well. And they just go on. And she's clearly some kind of fairy character. She, in very subtle way never directs them, allows them to think it's their own idea. She perhaps. Uh, you know, and there's this mysterious third, number three is important, unmarked arm of the canal, which is mysteriously unclogged, should be clogged up, should be, you know, needed clearing. Uh, and these mysterious villages that come and go, do you see how, how they are like the fairyland? And then the place becomes more desolate and just marshland and they keep going and there's nothing, and they never get any closer to the mountains and the woods. They're just going through this desolate marsh, and they don't see anybody, and then they have... I guess the number three is important in this, because it's three miles up. It's like Never Never Land, isn't it? Exactly. Never Never Land. You never get there. And uh, so they meet the old man with the scythe, who is like... Um, he, he struck me as um, a figure from the past. Um, he is, he's got a scythe, and he's cutting, thatching. Which, you know, in 1951, they didn't do so much anymore. I mean, it, it had a revival later on, but I think it was dying out, really. Uh, but he's like somebody from a constable painting. And um, first of all, he doesn't talk to them. Is he one of the fairy folk? Well, I first of all, I thought he was, or a ghost, or a figure from the past. And then they see the little boy. The little boy is, again, he's got no shoes. He's from the past. He's from the 1700s or so as well. And he says the same thing to villages three miles up. So he's complicit in this fairyland thing. One of the one of the good people himself. But then he sees Sharon, who, of course, they are shapeshifters. They can appear fair, like the devil. They can appear very beautiful, but um, underneath you see the corruption. And so the little boy seems to have um, 
realised who she was as she comes out. She's the queen of the fairies, you know, or, or an important one. And he is is terrified by her and runs away. So he, whether he is part of that world, my, my impression was that he was rather than a human, but he is in awe of the fairy queen who is dreadful and dangerous. The dogs are patrolling and I've just told Callie off for eating a hole in the wall. So I was very cross with her and she's trying to make up with me. Um, and there we are. So I thought it was a good story. It came up in our book club. Um, I've been pondering whether I should say the next thing. Um, I sometimes I do talk about my personal life, and I um, sometimes wonder whether I should. Um, most I, the weird thing is when I'm doing these, I feel like I'm talking to friends, and the comments I get back, the feedback I get back from people who listen to the podcast is as if they're my friends, and it's a very intimate. Um, relationship this you know i'm talking into your ear and you might be lying in the dark trying to get to sleep you might be going on a walk you might be you know doing working you might be doing all sorts and here i am talking to you like a friend and in a weird way even though we don't know each other i do feel like we are in some way friends there are some people this could be my daughter's coming hold that thought well now i'm back several hours later and we had a nice walk with the dogs katrin came up with her dog cosmo who's a cocker spaniel and Imogen, who doesn't have a dog, but who would like a dog, but her partner uh, has allergies, so or, or <laughs> does he? But he likes dogs, but he, I think he's putting off the idea of getting one. I'm not saying dogs are the answer to everything in the world, but they do make things better. They also chew holes in your walls, uh, so you need to bear that in mind. And one, my hat today, in fact, as well, and Sheila's glasses last week. So, you know, there are downsides, but there are pl plenty of upsides as well. So anyway, we had a nice walk. It was a bit muddy. Uh, that we've had a lot of frost recently, and then it just thawed, so it's a bit muddy. Um, they came to see me, and I, I was beginning to say this before, wasn't I? And I'm not saying this for likes, and I'm not saying it for hugs. I'm saying it to mark something really important and honour uh, somebody, which is my mother, who uh, sadly passed away yesterday. And after, you know, she was 85. She'd lived in pain for a while. It seems like she hadn't been well since she was 80, really. But it got worse and worse. And uh, this past month has been pretty hard for her, for us, for everything. But anyway, she said she was ready to go. She said also that um, she didn't regret anything. And I, I, I just wanted to mark it because I do these things and I'm telling you, my friends, that um, it should be a great loss. But the, what did what did we want? What what was what was the option? Even if she'd got, be she wouldn't have got better. That's that's the thing. So, but I wanted to say to thank her if she's listening somewhere. You never know. I mean, it's a ghost podcast, and if she's listening somewhere, there was never a, a second of my life. That I didn't know that she loved me. I mean, sometimes she was a little bit, <laughs> perhaps, too too much of an enthusiastic supporter. I remember once in my twenties, there was an advert in the Times about for the chief exec of ICI, and she was like, "You could do that." And I know, Mum, I couldn't. I couldn't really. Yeah, you could. You could just apply for it. No, really, there's no. You've got nothing to lose if you just apply for it. I didn't apply for it, but there we are. But that that was. Um, she was a. Uh, and the other thing I was going to say is, you know, I, in my job, I often, um, as a psychiatric nurse, although I'm doing that less and less now, 
I I have patience. Dog, dog food, dog food. Let's put this off for a minute. God, my life is just full of interruptions, isn't it? You know, people talk of they've lost somebody important to them, and you, 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 you do feel it, and you say to them, sorry for your loss, and you do mean it. But this is a reminder to me that if you haven't, if it isn't happening to you, you, you don't, you can be sympathetic and empathetic, and, and you can have a lot of love in your heart for them, but you don't know until you know. Anyway, that's enough. Margaret Walker. Born Margaret Fell in Maryport, 1938. Maryport, Cumberland, died in Carlisle, Cumberland, uh, 19th of January, 2024. One good thing that's come out of it has been I've had, got to spend a lot of time with my brother. You know, you, you, when you grow up, you spend a lot of time apart with people, and we've we've been together a lot, and that's been a great uh, gift. Sheila said that you know she's that's a gift that she's given you. Hey, man, you do, you go like this, you know, you're walking along, you think, oh, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. And suddenly your body does this great sob and you think, oh, goodness me, where did that come from? And your eyes kind of run. <laughs> uh, anyway, all of you who are, have had loss, um, I, I know what you feel like. My thoughts are with you. And all of those who haven't had, haven't been as lucky as me uh, in that, y your circumstances haven't been as fortunate as mine. I don't know what the right word is, but but I hear that as well. Uh, there we are. So a weird ghost story. Uh, but I felt if I didn't say something, well, you're saying, why did you record that? Uh, do you know what? It just kept my mind off stuff, you know. But there we are. I'm not wanting hugs. I'm not wanting, you know, all of that kind of thing. Like, good God, I don't want likes. But listen, just I had to, I had to kind of mention it because it's like a big deal. It's just a, an honouring, uh, and uh, that, that's that's the beginning and end of it really i hope you are all well i'm okay i'll keep doing the stories i'm a storyteller i know that now uh, i've been many things but i but always a storyteller and now i am pretty much nearly full time so um, that has been a great achievement as well so and it's all thanks to you thank you for listening and um, if it hadn't been for your support your comments and membership and just even just keeping me going you know it's it's been that has been a great gift as well so life has been i've been a lucky man in my life, honestly, I really have. I know other people haven't been as lucky, and, and uh, all right, it should count your blessings sometimes. Had a lovely walk today, as I said, with the four dogs. We were like a little dog army, and, and the three humans. I don't know how to end this, really, but uh, peace and Oh, the dogs have come upstairs. I better go. That was their timer. I've just been cooking their tea, so I'll go and, and put it out for them. Um, there we are. I'll speak to you soon. Bye.
Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody Some dies, come back, don't they? Isn't that Everybody so? Everybody come back, don't they? Isn't that Everybody so? Everybody come back, don't they? Isn't that Everybody so? Everybody come back, don't they? Isn't that Everybody so?